Well, I appreciate your presence here tonight, and uh, we're going to look at the basic things that um, every Christian ought to know. I was thinking, is there anything to this biblically? Uh, is there is there any evidence that even from a from a Bible standpoint that there are some basic things to know that are foundational? Versus things that, that are maybe additional. Well, there are. When you look at 1 Corinthians 15, there's a very important statement said about Jesus Christ. And when you consider who's saying it and who he's saying it to, it makes the statement even more profound. In 1 Corinthians 15, we have a statement from the Apostle Paul. And Paul, all of his life, was a follower of God. But all of his life, he was not a follower of Jesus Christ. In fact, at one time, he was hostile to the followers of Jesus Christ. He he could not accept the message about Jesus Christ. But then his witness of the risen Jesus turned him... And in light of the evidence, he became a follower of Jesus Christ and then preached and proclaimed that to others, not only his own people, but to people outside the the Jewish nation. And that's who he's sharing this with in Corinth, to people who may not all have that, um, that background in the people of God in Israel. But in this letter to a church that is going through problems, to a church that is dealing with with all sorts of troubles, and Paul's being asked to come in as something of a consultant or a mentor, a founder, a helper, and they have their list of questions, and he has a list of things that he's heard about. And if you glance through the letter, they're asking things uh, about whether or not someone can remarry after their unbelieving spouse has left them. They want to know those things. Uh, They have questions about the way that people ought to behave themselves in worship as to whether or not women ought to have their heads covered or not covered if they're praying and prophesying as they're asking questions about um, uh, whether or not you can eat meat that's been sacrificed to an idol. These are the things that are concerning them, concerning them enough that they are writing letters to Paul about it. And Paul has heard that, that they are tolerating some immoral behavior that is quite shameful. And uh, he has heard that there is disunity in the group. And so all of these issues are being addressed in the dialogue up to chapter 15. But right at the end... Paul takes them back to that which he considers of first importance. He's answered all of their questions, and and now he wraps it up and and says, I want to remind you of the most basic thing that I've taught. Let's look at uh, 1 Corinthians 15, the um, the first eight verses. He says, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the good news I preach to you which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this good news, you are saved. 
if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve and After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as if I were one abnormally born. Paul puts himself at the end of that list of witnesses. He's not going to deny it, but he puts himself out there as, as of lesser importance But the fact is that the scriptures testify to this. The witnesses testify to this. And this, he says, is of primary importance. That if it's not for this, then all of that other stuff that they've been talking about doesn't matter. Uh, There's a few things that, that are worth noting here. That when Paul says this is of first importance, what is it that's of first importance? It's the message that he, it's the message he received, the message he passed on, it is the good news, and, it, and th- it doesn't change. This is the same core good news. This is the reason you and I come together. This is the reason why um, um, people who have faith are listening to the podcast. This is the reason why uh, any of us have any kind of hope. This is what people are seeking, even if they don't know this good news yet. They've heard something about it, or maybe they're hearing it for the first time. But the good news message is essentially the same. You can change the language that it's spoken in. You can uh, change the way you deliver it. But at its core, it's the same basic thing. And it looks like this, Paul says. Christ died for our sins. That was according to the scriptures. This is... He says, it shouldn't have been a surprise to me. At one time, he was hostile to it, but he said, it shouldn't have been a surprise to me. It was all right there in Scripture. And in in other places, he'll go into the Scriptures that explain that. If you want proof that he died for our sins, he was buried. There's witnesses to that. He, He says, he was raised on the third day, and that also according to the Scriptures. He said, you can find it. You can find it in God's plan. You can find it in the prophecies. It's there. And then, if you want proof of that, you've got witnesses. You've got Cephas. You've got the 12. And then you've got 500 people who at different times Christ appears to them. This isn't just something that, a, that a, one or two individuals that, you know, we're not sure if we can corroborate their stories. Oh, no. Large groups of people who would recognize Jesus, who would know him, see him and encounter him, risen from the dead. Uh, You've got the accounts in Gospels. And by the way, all the Gospel accounts come in after this. What we're reading right here in 1 Corinthians 15 predates the Gospels at least by 10 or 15 years. But it's a message that has been shared with 
groups, and, and, and the story has been told, and the, the witness to this, and they've found meaning. They've, you know, what does this mean? I mean, he's risen from the dead. Well, we can go back, and we can look, and it's in the scriptures. And then people like Luke and Matthew and Mark start putting the gospel account together to record it for other generations. John comes along later and starts to record it for them. And, and, and the, the memory of what people saw is, is told, and, and that's how you and I come to access this, this information, is that there are people who were willing, and they're willing to even put their life on the line for what they've seen and what they've heard and what they know, what they experienced. Um, they are pressured to recant and to, to step away from this story, but no, they do. Paul, in fact, really, if you think about it, he loses everything he ever had in his life to accept this message. And yet, he considers it totally worth it to give up everything for this. This uh, section in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15 begins and ends with the word in, or the phrase, in vain. He said, um, if they don't hold firmly to this good news in verse 2, then they have believed in vain. They have belie- they've believed a lie. It's pointless is what he's saying. At the end, uh, in uh, chapter 15, verse 58, he says, Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Paul was willing to risk all of that and go through what he went through because he believed in the greater reality of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And that, he says, is of first importance. And without it, the rest of it doesn't matter. Now, um, we, we see what he says there of first importance. We have the, uh, the, the testimony, the message, the good news... We have the scriptural uh, basis and, and support for this. And then we have the witnesses. He died. He was raised. He appeared. Paul wants to emphasize that this is of great importance, not just because it's a logical principle that's foundational, but everything hinges on this. Let's move forward into verse 12. In verse 12, he says, If it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead... How can some of you say there's no resurrection from the dead? We assume from that that that's a problem in Corinth. And yet, I, you know, we, can, we can understand that. that. That even people who claim to be followers of Christ, uh, accepting the resurrection can be difficult. Now, I'm not saying we don't have our doubts. I'm not saying that that's a lot to accept. Because let's be honest, resurrection from the dead does not fit in any category that we ordinarily have. We have to create a special category for it. And rightly so. And that's what Paul's going to talk about. He says it's not going to fit your categories. They're going to ask questions about resurrection bodies. What are resurrection bodies like? What kind of, what kind of material is it made of? Well, you know, what kind of biology does it represent? What sort of, you know, he says, wait a second. He says, This is a different kind of species altogether, the resurrection body. Christ is the prototype. He's the first. We've never seen its like before. 
we will only see its like again when all the dead are resurrected. So it does have a, a special category. That's the, the sum of what Paul's saying here in chapter 15. He says, um, there, if there is not a resurrection, then the preaching of the gospel is useless, and so is your faith. I, I really hope that we grasp that, because let me tell you, there's a, there, for, for quite some time, and I think that as we move more and more uh, up against uh, secularization, we're going to see that belief in Christ is going to be pushed into a, uh, a personal, private matter, and the emphasis will be on the morality of it and how it's good with no other implication than what it does for you personally. Uh, this has been happening for quite some time. I told you about a special presentation that uh, we're going to give you next week, and, and, and part of what that's based on is the fact that in European countries, uh, and, and this young, young woman who, who lived here among us for a while, she, she's from Sweden. In Sweden, it's, it's, it's very common for people to disregard the, uh, the gospel as, as myth. If you've ever heard uh, uh, Dr. Bob Whitaker share his story of how he came to faith, he'll tell you that his, his parents, yeah, uh, years ago, uh, I think it was his father at least, believed that, and I love the way he says it, believed that the gospel and the Bible was nothing but a bunch of fairy stories. You know, it was made up stuff. And, and, and for at least a hundred years or more, this has been the case in the Western world. And so Jesus is accepted, but the, the, the radical claims of, of the supernatural are sort of disregarded. Thomas Jefferson did that. Uh, he, he couldn't accept anything that didn't fit within reason, but he appreciated the moral teachings of, of Jesus. We know that uh, this was an issue at least um, 50 years ago or so in Britain. And to me, one of the people that helps me struggle through this where we encounter it in culture today. And by the way, we are still, you know, somewhat protected and insulated from this in a generally Christian culture where we're at. And we don't know what it's like for some of these young people in European countries or maybe in other parts of the United States or, or parts of the world where, uh, where the supernatural is disregarded. We don't know what it's like for them to breathe the thin air where there's very little encouragement. But if we, we look to uh, certain writers through the ages, we see this. I want to read to you from um, something that C.S. Lewis wrote. I, I'm just going to say it. He's one of my favorites. And I think I like the way C.S. Lewis thinks about these things. Mere Christianity is uh, one of his great classics. And in it, he makes, it's, it's, he's, he's collecting some writings and some lectures that he did and and really, it's a set of, of radio addresses that he did during World War II where he's addressing the basics of the Christian faith, sort of like we're attempting to do here. And um, in that, uh, he approaches this idea, and it's not original with him, but this idea that you have to make a decision about who Jesus Christ is. I'm just going to read what Lewis writes. He says, I'm trying to prevent... 
I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. He means Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg. <laughs> See, you've got to love C.S. Lewis for the way he says these things. And he predates Monty Python even, and he's saying this stuff, and you know, he's a fellow thinks he's a poached egg. You know? He says, this is ridiculous, but, but, he's, but he's warning us. He's saying, don't give us that silly nonsense that Jesus is just a great moral teacher. He goes, well, 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 no, you can't, you can't accept that. It doesn't fit. He says he's either a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. And this is why it matters. I mean, C.S. Lewis is channeling Paul here, and he's in a great tradition of those who are saying, look, you either accept that Jesus was who he says he was, or the rest of this is meaningless. Paul puts it like this in the first century. Uh, Verse 19, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, We are of all people most to be pitied. I'm going to confess to you that I I once accepted the idea, probably in my my early adulthood, I once accepted the idea, thinking that I was making a clever argument, that even if there is no God, and even if all of this isn't true, that Christianity is still the best option for living that was available. That's That's ridiculous. I look at it now and I realize, I think what I was trying to do is I was trying to, you know, say, well, you know, it's still good. It's still good. You can, you can make that. No. It's because Christianity wasn't costing me a whole lot, and it was easy to say that. When you realize how much it truly costs, how much it costs people who believe this, and you realize they have to have faith in something much greater than their own ability to think this through. Now, I totally reject the idea that, that this is the best option of all options, even if it's not true. No. <clears throat> I think that, like Thomas Jefferson says, the moral teachings of the Bible would change the world for the better, but there's got to be more to it than that because humanity has proven over the ages that on our own, we are not capable of that kind of morality on our own. And every time we think we get there, we're just building another Tower of Babel and praising and exalting ourselves. Now, we need something more. We need the kind of power that can raise the dead. We need the sort of power that allows Jesus to appear to witnesses and triumphs over death. Um, In verse 20, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Here's where Paul is saying that Christ is the prototype, 
that he is the uh, he is the first of 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 what will be truly the new humanity that Christ is the is the is the first of those to be raised from the dead and to overcome death and so there's 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 something that we're still waiting on but we see it in Jesus Christ those witnesses who saw him risen witnessed something that forever changed them and changed the world around them because the implications of this mean that our life doesn't end with the date we expire that there's more to it than that <clears throat> um We've got a new category now that, that we may not have realized before. In verse 25, he says, um, <clears throat> all the enemies must be put under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. One of the other things that's of uh, first importance here about Jesus is that not only did he die according to the scriptures and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, but you'll see this often <clears throat> in Paul's messages and in the New Testament. Jesus Christ is exalted. In Ephesians 4, uh, Jesus Christ is, is raised to the right hand of God. In fact, later on, you'll see it here in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, where he says, uh, verse 27, He has put, meaning God, He, God, has put everything under His feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under Him, it's clear that this does not include God Himself, who is the one who put everything under Christ. And when he's done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to the one, to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Jesus becomes one with God. He's right there at the right hand of God. There's, there's nothing between uh, God and, and Jesus the Son. They, uh, that is uh, first position, second position. You can see him as equal, co-equal, whatever you want to do. I doesn't care, but there's nothing else. The idea is, is that with Christ, everything is under his authority, including death. If there is anything outside of Christ's authority, then he's not truly Christ. That's part of the implications of this great first importance good news message. So, uh, you know, they, they've got some, if they are discounting the resurrection of the dead and saying that doesn't fit their categories, then they've got some problems. Uh, what are you going to do about all the people who are baptized for the dead? What does that mean? I don't know. We're not going to discuss it here. Uh, you know, he, he, uh, he said, his point is that, you know, it doesn't make any sense. Any of your practices don't make any sense if, if, if the dead are not raised. Uh, verse 35, an argument that someone could, could argue with, well, then, yeah, but how are the dead raised? I mean, what kind of body do they, do they come in, you know? Aren't we supposed to be ghosts? Aren't we supposed to be, you know, separated from the body? He says, he says you're, you're, again, you're trying to fit this into a category that, that you won't fa- uh, find. And he goes through the examples of nature in this world and everything that's in this world, uh, that, that all these things fit into God's way of doing things, the different kinds of flesh, the different kinds of glories. Well, then there's also a spiritual body. Um, and again, some of this we'll come back to later on when we talk about some of these basic things uh, because they touch on it. But, but I want us, again, to focus on the basic part of this, which is Christ is who he said he is, that the resurrection does occur, and that is of first importance. So that by the time we get to the, uh, to the end of, of, of Paul's statement, 
in verse uh, 54, he says, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, when the mortal has been clothed with immortality, that's when the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. And there he's quoting Isaiah. And now he quotes Hosea. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? That's, that's a taunt to death. Ha ha, death, you don't get the last word. You don't get the victory. You don't get the last word or the final pain. Not at all. The exalted one does. The one who's raised. It says, the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Because this is true, this is this good news of first importance about Jesus, it means that what we do in the name of, of God is not in vain. That's an important message because... You know, some of us can find ourselves struggling for years or maybe hoping that things will change or maybe there's a situation that we want to change. Maybe there's something we've been working on. Maybe there are people we're passionate about sharing the gospel with and their, their ears are closed and things just don't ever seem to change. Just know this. The story is never over when God is involved. And what you're doing in his name is not meaningless. You know, one of the things that, that, that happens so often uh, in our world is that people are seeking purpose in life. They're trying to find meaning. You, uh, you grow up. You go to school. You get a career. You get a job. You work. You retire. And then you, you know, maybe do a few good things. And then at the end of life, you say, was it worth it? Was it worth it? You know, did I do any good? Did I make impact? And, and, and people can get so down wondering about it. Well, again, this is where the temptation to do everything on our own terms, in our own name, even for good causes, you know, like the idea that somehow by our own efforts we can make everything better and we can make the world more moral. And, and you know, it, it's not us alone that can do that. We, we can't. But if we're working in the Lord and if the same power that raised him from the grave is it work in us, then nothing we do is meaningless because God works in it. He, he, he uses it. And if you stop and think about it, here's this broken up Corinthian church that has more problems than you can shake a stick at. I mean, I'd say that if any of us were worshiping at Corinth, we'd probably leave after the first worship service and be like, ooh, too much of this. I'm out of here. You know, It's crazy what's going on in there. You know, I just don't even know. And, uh, tongue speakers and, and without interpreters, you know, and so we would, we'd be gone. But Paul's not giving up on them. He says, keep, keep after it, but he does tell them that they need to return to that which is of first importance, and what's of first importance involves Christ. One more, one more idea. If you go back and you look at all of the issues that Paul addressed, Sometimes we get caught up in the issues. You know, what about this issue and what about that issue? Note carefully that 
Paul addresses every single issue by appealing somehow to the example or the truth of Jesus Christ. That everything is interpreted through that lens. But you're thinking, really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. They got problems in communion. You know, they're just practical problems, the way that they're arranging themselves. Some of them are eating up all the food, and some of them are drinking up all the drink, and you know, they're, they're excluding people. What does he take them back to? Christ. I want to remind you what I shared with you about Christ on the night he's betrayed. Every time he goes back to Christ. Well, what about the guy that, that's having a, a scandalous affair with his uh, you know, father's wife and that whole arrangement, and it's just all wrong and everything? He reminds them that they're the, you know, they're the body of Christ. They represent him. You know, it all goes back to Christ. Well, you can do that on your own. You can find that. But uh, it, 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 you never find him coming up with any other. I mean, he, he, he mentions other things. He shows other things. But it always takes you back to that which is of first importance. Now, I think we would do well to do the same on everything. Well, thank you again for your attention, and uh, we will build more on the, the basics about Christ from here, but I thought this is of first importance, this is the right place to start. The communion's been prepared in room 100, uh, maybe that's what you need to do tonight, and uh, we're going to sing a song together, and then Todd's going to dismiss us in prayer, so let's stand and sing and encourage one another. <laughs>